Hello and welcome to Old Boys Club, a podcast where two young women explain the ins and outs of Australian politics. And there's no such thing as a stupid question. My name is Justine Landis-Hanley. I am a journalist and I used to work in politics. My name is Matilda Bosley. I am also a journalist and I didn't used to work in politics. But who knows, one day (laughs) you might sell out too. Yeah, look, the money's going. (laughs) Coming up on the show today... It's now illegal for citizens to come into Australia from India and the United Nations is not happy. Is the ban justified and what is the long-term solution? Let's play a game of is it racist? A question that if you have to ask about a policy, it's probably not a great sign. (laughs) China has cut off diplomatic contact with Australia in a dramatic move and it has something to do with a belt and a road. And which one's the belt? Which one's the road? I'll I'll give you a hint. The one called road isn't the road. (laughs) I'm not joking. I'll get into it. It's ri- the the road is the maritime path. There's a road. There- oh, there is. But it's a water road and it's called boats being on the water. <laughs> and if that wasn't enough for our big topic, we're going to dive into all things federal budget so that you know what's going on when the government announces this year's budget next Tuesday. And then if we have time, we'll dive into all things this podcast budget. We're hemorrhaging money. <laughs> We are in the red. We spent, we bought audio equipment. We, we bought audio equipment and we took nice photos on the weekend and we are making no money. We this. spent a f- weird amount of money on stickers for a podcast that <laughs> <laughs> such a new podcast. We've got a lot of stickers. But first, Matilda, how is your week? Oh, my week's been good. I had a near-death experience. <laughs> I'm still laughing about this. Oh, I'm sorry. Is my life so funny to you? (laughs) No, I'm sorry. I'm going to take you seriously. Oh, who's going to design the stickers if I'm dead, Justine? (laughs) Okay. Okay, fine. Not everyone can make a camper. Okay, you're okay, but you're alive. You're alive. Tell me what happened. What do you mean you had a near-death experience? Should I be worried? (laughs) Well, I mean, when I say near-death, me and our producer, Anthony, who may or may not live together because he may or may not be my boyfriend, um, moved into a new apartment recently. And we moved in in summer and then it's recently become cold. Yeah, we, yeah we're in Melbourne. Does. It's yeah, freezing. Yeah, yeah. It's bloody freezing. Um, and then we're like, oh, we will turn on the big gas heater in the main room, right? Mm. And then I looked at it and then <laughs> a spirit from above told me, Matilda, don't turn on that gas, that <laughs> gas heater. And by a spirit from above, I just mean like all those carbon monoxide ads that they play on TV. Wow, they really rubbed off. They, they really were. Gen- okay. Whichever government organised that, good work. Actually, it was a great advertising campaign because I'm like, okay, I'll call the real estate agent. I'm like, give me a certificate for like carbon monoxide. They were like, we'll work on what it. What do you mean like a certificate? Like, like to just show like that a certificate like it's safe? being like, we're not, this heater isn't going to kill you because we checked it recently. Yeah. And then they didn't send me a certificate, but they did send some service people. So Im- impute what you want from that. And then they, <laughs> um, the service people came and then they turned on the heater and they said the heater works, but it has failed the carbon monoxide test. And not only has it failed the test, it has failed it the most out of any heat they have ever seen in their life. Wow, you really could have died. I, yeah. I could have, do you know, like all the hauntings? This, they yeah. think that's carbon monoxide poisoning. I could have thought I was haunted, but I didn't. And I saved all my roommates' lives too. 
Wow. That would have been the end of this Half podcast. Half of this podcast would have been taken out in one fell swoop from carbon monoxide poisoning. <laughs> carbon by a heater. Yeah. Oh, my god. You would have walked in, been like, we need to record the podcast. What's going on? Walk into our apartment. Virgin suicides all over the point. <laughs> Dead bodies everywhere. <laughs> okay. The point is I've saved my own life and I saved the lives of three others. And, and you if- saved the life of this podcast. Yeah. Justine, my beautiful, amazing, gorgeous, majestic podcast host, how is your week going? So I haven't had a near-death experience, but I've come to a a real realisation about a really significant person in my life. Please. And that is um, my cat. So Sonny. I have a cat called Sonny. Matilda knows him well. He loves people. Yeah, we have a cat called Astro. I do. We have competing podcast cats. Go on. Go on about Sonny. (laughs) So Sonny is like, he is a great cat. He is so loving he just wants to cuddle you all the time he plays fetch great cat all around couldn't complain but have realized recently he's a fucking psychopath (laughs) like he and that's because for the last week he has learned to do to achieve anything to get whatever he wants he just has to pick at our expensive bedhead in the middle of the night guess what what? Our cats learnt the exact same trick with our what? expensive armchair. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the crazy thing is our cat, though, Sunny, has learnt not to pick on my side of the bed because I'm a dead – like I'm just like I go to sleep. I don't come back until the morning. But he will wake up my partner. And so he's learnt to pick by my partner's ear to wake him up in the middle of the night. Oh, no. And he does it at 4.30 a.m. when we're the most vulnerable and that he just gets whatever he wants because all we want is sleep. That is so mean. And my cat has done the same thing where I'm the one that feeds him in the morning because uh, my partner Anthony leaves very early in the morning before cat breakfast time. So now <laughs> he'll come at 5 a.m. and lick my face with his scratchy little tongue until I like get up and throw him out of the room or go and feed him. But no one's dead. So that's good. Yet. Get your carbon monoxide check. This, this episode is brought to you by getting your carbon monoxide check. It's not a ghost. You're just dying. <laughs> A government ad from 2000 and something. Well, it worked. Matilda, before we jump into today's episode, uh, we need to give a very special shout out to one of our new listeners. Which one? Who are we doing? So normally we shout out everyone who shares us on Instagram at the end of the episode because we have a lot of names to go through. Oh my God, so many names. Yeah, we're so grateful. It's been Um, a weird week. um, But we just wanted to quickly shout out one very special listener. Her name is Lily. She's 13 years old and her mum got in touch with us this week because Lily had overheard her listening to this show and had also become a fan. So thank you so much for listening, Lily. We're so happy to have you here. Lily, you're going to be so politically informed by the time it gets to VCA. I don't think I even knew about like the nationals when I was – in year seven, yeah, you're miles, you're, you're miles ahead of us at that age, and probably a lot of your a lot of your friends. So, well, like, keep going and keep listening, and well done. Okay, Justine. So, our first story this week, which is something that's dominated headlines throughout the week, is the fact that it's now illegal for Australian citizens to re-enter Australia if they've been to India in the last two weeks. How did we get here? So it's a great question. We covered the India travel ban and the situation that's happening in India on our show last Friday, but things have only gotten worse since then. So India is experiencing a really tough time with the coronavirus. They last Wednesday had 412,000 new cases in a day. And unfortunately, 
almost 4,000 deaths. And those, um, and we mentioned this last week as well, that's absolute minimum. That's a vast underestimate by sort of whatever, everyone agrees the official numbers don't even sort of hold a flame to what's really going on. They're probably on. a lot higher because we just don't know like how many people, like some people wouldn't be getting tested, some people wouldn't be getting diagnosed properly. Like it's, this is just a conservative guess. So last week, the situation in India started to affect Australia, which caused the government to freak out. There was an outbreak in Western Australia's hotel quarantine stemming from somebody who did come back from India with the virus. And in response, the Western Australian Premier Mark McGowan came out and said, you know, this is a real urgent situation. Like, we need to address this. We need to block flights from India. And that's what happened. And put the whole state into lockdown for three whole day. Yeah, it sent the state into lockdown for three days and the Australian government, federal government came out and said, we are just going to ban flights from India until May 15th. So yeah, that's where we got up to last week. And then sort of what, three or four hours after we put out the podcast, some big developments happened. So essentially, you know how like we like cricket as a country? It's true. We do like cricket. We had some cricketers over there for some reason. Seems a bit sus. Um, And they needed to get back because like all of a sudden the flight's banned. So a couple of cricketers managed to get a flight somewhere else like fly out of India and then fly back to Australia. Mm. And then everyone's like, wait a gosh darn second. That means the flight ban doesn't mean anything. Yes. Um, And then in the middle of the night, we get a media release. Walk me through it. Okay, so the Australian federal government puts out this media release saying not only is there now a ban on flights coming from India to Australia, it is now illegal for any Australian citizens to travel back to Australia from India. Yeah, I mean, technically any anyone at all, but the people we're pretty focused on is the citizens in this situation because yes. this is genuinely, as far as people can find, the first time that it's ever been illegal for an Australian citizen to re-enter their country without, you know, like committing a crime in another country. Yeah. So now any Australian citizen returning from India, they will run the risk of five years in jail and fines of up to $66,000 or both. Yeah. Matilda, before we move on, I think we need to clear up a bit of confusion about where these sanctions and fines came from. Yep. And is that clearing it up for the audience or the government? Potentially both. (laughs) Government, if you're listening, we're about to break this down for you. No, I know you know, Scott Morrison. You just don't want us to know you know. (laughs) So this travel ban was introduced under this thing called the Biosecurity Act. Wow, that sounds very scary. Yes. So the government has this act which gives them the power to do things like make travel bans, stop people going into certain parts of Australia, stop people coming into Australia. It's a type of like emergency kind of powers act. When shit hits the fan like it has been consistently for the (laughs) last 400 days there's (laughs) these sort of extra powers the government can enact yes and so within the biosecurity act there are already a bunch of penalties that are built into it yeah because that's like how a law works right yeah yeah you have to have a reason to follow it yes and they will apply if someone breaches the mm, commandments that the government instigates as part of this act if the biosecurity czar (laughs) lays down a decree (laughs) and you go against it the basic penalty is five years in jail or sixty six thousand dollars worth of fines and the reason we point this out is because there's been a lot of backlash that has come out as a result of these 
criminal penalties. Yeah, so the way it was announced was in this press release that was dropped at the middle of the night. Like 1am last Friday. So in a few lines into the press release, it says, blah, 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 you're no longer allowed, the Biosecurity Act's enacted, and here are the penalties. Mm. Like laying it out pretty clearly. At the top of the press release. Yeah. So it was a pretty clear and a pretty hardline message that was being sent. So so what was the public reaction to this? People were pissed. Like, oh my God. From all, but but the crazy thing, is that people from all sides of politics were so mad about this this criminalized travel ban? It's lit. I can't. There's no way to guess who's mad and who's not. And I think that's it's kind of shocking. But when you think about why, it's not so. People typically on the left wing side of politics were quite upset. Why? So the left were upset for, I guess, pretty expected reasons, which is the fact that uh, if you look at the statistics a certain way, it very much seems that the US and the UK both had more cases of COVID per capita at the peak of their outbreaks than India did when we were having this conversation last week. Mm. Uh, but like, we never banned the flights from the UK. And like, okay, India's got this like weird variant, but like the UK had a variant as well. It was never even a sort of question about UK Australians getting home. It seems like double standards. Like, why would we impose these travel bans and make it a criminal offence to come from India when we never did that for the US or the UK? Yeah, it seems almost like you're turning citizenship into this kind of like animal farm thing of like all Australian (laughs) citizens are equal, but some Australian citizens are more equal than others. And those are the white ones, right? <laughs> the ones, like, all the ones coming from white nations. Yeah, so that's one side of politics and that's fairly intuitive. Tell me about why the right side of politics was angry. Yeah, so it's kind of surprising because we often associate people to the right of centre uh, as not being big fans of immigration, um, standing against refugees coming to Australia and asylum seekers, so why would they get upset about a travel ban? But it's because the people who are trapped over there are Australian citizens. So you have people like Matt Canavan, who is a member of the federal government who's made this decision. Yeah. Oh, oh, this is not him saying the government's policy is shitty. This is him saying my government's <laughs> policy is shitty. Yes. So he came out and said that he thought that we should be bringing Australian citizens back to Australia. Andrew Bolt, the very well-known conservative commentator, came out and said this policy is racist. He said it stinks of racism. It said He said it makes him ashamed of Australia. Which if he's saying that, he's like a very right-wing shock jock. You know that something's bad. Yeah. And the reason why we have these right-wing conservatives coming out and and standing against this policy is because, you know, their focus isn't immigration or or refugees, but it's about protecting Australian citizens. And we currently have around 9,000 Australian citizens trapped in India. And I think it's worth actually going into, you know, we're saying, oh, there's 9,000 citizens trapped. Let's talk about what that actually means. Like India is in a situation where, you know, a few days ago, allegedly 23 people died in a hospital because the hospital ran out of oxygen. Now, mm. the officials contest that, but that's sort of what the international the media is saying. Like, this is a situation where, you know, people go to hospital with COVID and their family members are told, like, bring your own canister of oxygen, literally. Mm. And, you know, it's this situation where, like, the, the health system is crumbling. Like, it doesn't even have to be COVID. Like, if you have a stroke, a minor stroke in India at the moment, there's no guarantee that you're going to be getting adequate health care. 
And the government was well aware of these risks when this decision was made. Because since then, we've seen the chief medical uh, officer's notes and like recommendations when we're talking about the flight ban. And to be clear, he supported the flight ban to India. But in the notes, it said there is a risk of serious illness or in a worst case scenario, death of Australian citizens in India due to the failing health system. Mm. So the government says, no, this is the lesser of two evils, we can't have a third wave in Australia. Like this is, you know, we're we're having to make the hard choices. But we just should keep in mind those hard choices involved consciously creating a situation in which Australian citizen lives were at risk. Yes. So the perception is that the government wanted to act all tough and they've basically spent the week since then trying to walk this back. The prime minister came out and said, oh, like we didn't come up with these sanctions. They were just in the Biosecurity Act. And then he came out and said, oh, like no one's actually going to go to jail. And then the deputy prime minister came out and said, yeah, no, zero percent of chance of anyone going to jail. And then Scott Morrison blamed the media for drumming up the fact that there were all these sanctions. And they for all the chaos around it. I can't believe it. Like, my jaw dropped when I heard this interview. It's insane. He was saying that, like, oh, actually, we we didn't threaten it. It's just that the media picked up on this and then they made this into a huge deal and that's why everyone's worried about these jail time and threats. Yeah, it's like it was the fourth line of the press release, sorry, that press reported on it. <laughs> you could have put it at the end. Yes. Um, but there are some practical steps that we have coming forward out of yeah, this. Yeah, we've bullied the government into taking some action, right? <laughs> yes, so... Cabinet's National Security Committee, basically a committee within the like core group of the government, has signed off on a plan to begin repatriating Australians stranded in India once the temporary ban is lifted on May 15 next week. Yes, so this seems like it's going to be sort of government-organised flights. It will pick up a bunch of people from India and then they'll deliver them back to the Howard Springs facility, which is the really good quarantine facility in Darwin. That they've developed, yeah. Yeah, that they've been, that they've been spending these two weeks Aggressively ramping up. (laughs) Aggressively building. Um, Okay, so in the last week, the government made this sort of very tough announcement. They've then been caught in the spotlight a bit. It didn't go the way they wanted. They've walked it back. Uh, They've then made sort of like a loosey-goosey commitment that the ban won't be extended longer by committing to repatriation flights starting at the end of those two weeks. And then also, I mean, I feel like we haven't – this is so big. We haven't even mentioned the fact that the UN High Commission on Human Rights is like very concerned with what Australia is doing. And also one of the men – the Australian citizens in India is now launched like serious constitutional legal action saying that, you know, this breaches the Australian constitution, um, which debatable whether it does or not. But like there's, it, there's a lot going on. What happens now? So on Friday, the day that this podcast is released, National Cabinet is meeting, which is where all the states and territory governments and the federal government get together. Given the amount of pressure that the federal government has faced over this decision, it's probably going to be discussed at National Cabinet. Whether that's going to change the outcome unclear. Yeah. I mean, the federal government's been pretty firm on like this ban is going to be in place until the 15th of May. Yes. Yeah. And the other thing that could be discussed is whether the federal government is going to build more federal run quarantine facilities, which could help the situation because it is better than hotel quarantine and could allow more people to come back to Australia. Yeah. The states all want the federal government to pony up that money, but they've also been pretty firm on like, no, we've extended Howard Springs and that's about it. All we're going to do. So I don't know. Like I know people are quite hopeful for this meeting. I just, I, I don't quite see where the wiggle room is. I'm hoping that I'll be eating my words by next week, but it's unclear to me what would come out of this. As usual, it's a story to watch. So for our second story, something that broke on Thursday afternoon. Yeah. The Chinese government has announced it is indefinitely suspending 
all activities under the China-Australia Strategic Economic Dialogue and cutting off basically all diplomatic discussions with Australia in response to this Belt and Road thing. Mm -hmm. Matilda, what has happened? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, okay, this has been something that we've been kind of wanting to talk about for a little while because this China thing has been simmering away under the surface. There's also no chance that we're going to be able to cover all of it in this, uh, you know, little segment. So we will eventually do, I don't know, a a 100-episode series on the China-Australia relationship. But... Let's have a bit of a crash course here. What you need to know today. Yep. So to start off laying the groundwork, what is happening with Australia's relationship with China? Yeah, it's shit. Okay. <laughs> um, so since like April 2020, Australia led the charge for having this investigation into the kind of early days of COVID in Wuhan in the fish market, investigating what actually caused it. The Chinese government was not happy about this. They saw it as like quite an aggressive action. So then they retaliated. They put uh, 80% tariffs on Australian barley. We were like, oh, no, that's bad. We like cancelled some deals that Australian businesses were going to make in Australia. They put a tariff on wine. They lock up a few journals. Journalists, we kick a few people out. They write a mean speech about Australia. We do a mean speech about China. Basically, it's been this tit for tat, tit for tat, tit for tat for all of these last eight months or so. You know, they photoshopped a picture of an Australian Afghan soldier committing a war crime just for like shits and gigs I guess. on Twitter. That was yeah, that was a bad moment. That was bad. <laughs> Morrison was like really angry, and that's been part of it, which is Australia has been reacting to this quite a lot, like quite Mm. aggressively for a country that's so economically dependent on China. Wait, so how economically dependent are we? Oh, extremely economically dependent. So China is our biggest trading partner. It's like 30% of our trade or a little bit under, like 56% of Western Australia's exports go to China. Like Western Australia, you know know Western Australia, the giant mine where like 10 people live? (laughs) I've heard of it, yes. (laughs) No, I'm totally joking, Western Australia. We love you. We need your mining money to survive. Please don't. Leave us. We love you, Daddy McGowan. Um, so, so 50% yeah. of their exports go to China. So, like, yeah, we're very reliant. Like, even down to our, how our university system runs, very reliant on China. Like, a lot of our universities do deals with China to have things like Confucius Institutes and museums and programs. Yeah. They have a lot of Chinese international students come to Australia. So so this is laying the stage. Like, our, our relationship's deteriorating. But then, and most people can follow up to here, but then everyone starts talking about the belt and road and it gets real confusing real fast. Matilda, what is the Belt and Road? Justine, I'm going to answer that with a a question to you. Mm -hmm. Um, Out of the Belt and the Road, which one do you think um, is talking about a road? I would think it's the road. Ah, No, (laughs) the Belt is the road and the road is a series of maritime trade (laughs) (laughs) routes. Okay, okay. I'll rewind. I'll talk about it. So, you know China. Have heard of the country we've been talking about for the last few minutes? Yeah, you know how it like had a communist revolution like a few decades ago, and then it's just been like having this whole sort of policy of like biding its time and like slowly building itself up economically, but not really making too much of a splash in the international arena, so people don't really see it as a threat. And then one day they'll sort of like blossom into this amazing sort of power and like force within the region and the world. I thought that they were a superpower. Oh, we're in the blossoming, baby. <laughs> We're in the blossoming. So, yes, China <laughs> used to be the sleeping giant. Yes. And then Xi Jinping took power. He's the president of okay. China. Okay. Uh, he's the one that you're not allowed to say that he looks like Winnie the Pooh, even though he looks like <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, that's a, it's a whole thing. <laughs> Xi Jinping takes power and then he announces this, like, very ambitious new policy called, well, 
is now called the Belt and Road. It was called the Silk Road, the New Silk Road, the One Belt, One Road. It's had a lot of names. We're going to call it the Belt and Road. Okay. And essentially the Belt and Road is about establishing a bunch of trade routes all around the world. Imagine like a metro train map that goes all across the world and the oceans Mm -hmm. and then kind of like not everything leads to China, but China's definitely like the central hub station, the Flinders Street for us Melbourneian (laughs) folks. All roads lead to China, but they're not all roads. Yeah. Some of them are ports. In fact, most of them are ports. So you may be asking why. Oh, yes, Matilda, why? Uh, So essentially the idea is that this is basically a way for China to build up nations to help with trade and like what China says is like look it's a win-win we get easier trade you get better infrastructure our businesses and like this works by China giving loans or like business investments so like maybe you know a Chinese company runs the port afterwards and they make a little bit of interest on the loan and you know like we get so it's it's good for everyone right let me let me understand so China gives loans to other countries to build trade routes. It benefits the countries, making it easier for them to like have the infrastructure to do this trade. Benefits China because then it's easier for them to do the trade. But what I'm kind of hearing is it might also be building a little bit of a nice friendship. Yeah. So there's uh, – it's not really fooling anyone. Everyone kind of knows that the Belt and Road is sort of about building global influence for China and especially with smaller nations building a really close relationship with China so that, you know, maybe one day down the track, like, all our ports are because of China. We should probably support China yeah, kind you, of thing. Someone does a favour for you, you kind of feel like you should do a favour back. As well as, like, when we're talking about superpowers, we're sort of talking about this kind of, like, soft power control. Like, America has a lot of this stuff going on already. China's, in a way, replicating it, maybe going further. So a lot of countries that are America or are closely aligned with America, like Australia, are very nervous about this. So the Australian government hasn't signed on to the Belt and Road, Mm. uh, except for the Victorian government who did. Oh. Yeah. So the Victorian government signed this thing called a Memoranda of Understanding, which, like, is no firm commitments, but essentially was like, okay, China, we'll chat about you giving us some money for some infrastructure in the future. Mm -hmm. And, And, like, to be very clear, and I think this is something that gets very confused a lot, none of the current infrastructure projects going on in Victoria are funded by China, not part of the Belt and Road. Gotcha. This is more like a loosey-goosey agreement for the future. Like we don't even have a plan of what that money would build Uh, or how much money. But the loosey-goosey agreement has gone out the window. sorry, did I say that in present tense? I meant there was a (laughs) loosey-goosey agreement. Talk talk us through it. I love how you throw to me for all the Ozpol law stuff. Please tell me the legislation. I don't (laughs) understand it. (laughs) So the government brought in this foreign powers bill last year. It was introduced in like August and then they brought it in and just December very quick and it gives the government the power to shred up any agreements that government bodies like states or territory governments or universities have with foreign powers and in particular a lot of those agreements are with China. Yeah look if we're gonna like have a graph of where all our agreements are probably a lot of them are with China and and specifically it's agreements that the federal government deems to be against Australia's national interests. Yes and one of the agreements that the government did rip up with this new special law was the Victorian government's Belt and Road Initiative. Yes, so the Victorian Belt and Road potential agreement is ripped up and other projects that China's involved with is sort of like the government's figuring it out whether they're going to cancel those too. So essentially we're going through, we're like ripping through the documents, you know, (laughs) where we're really like cutting down on how much influence either Chinese 
agencies directly or Chinese like companies that are pretty closely aligned to the Chinese Communist Party are involved within Australia. And yep. guess who doesn't like that? China. China <laughs> actually oh. doesn't love it. And so, Matilda, what happened this week? Yeah, so it's almost like uh, we titted and they tatted. They've tatted pretty big. So Thursday comes around and we hear that Beijing has formally cut off all diplomatic communications to Australia. Oh, by the way, when I say Beijing, I mean the Chinese government. That's like a weird thing that like political international nerds do where like they just say the capital city when they mean the government. So when I say Canberra, I mean like ScoMo and his crew. And when I say Beijing, I mean Xi Jinping. Um, so Thursday rolls around, Beijing announces they're cutting off diplomatic ties to China. Why is this important? Well, I see you ask. I see you ask with your eyes. Oh, sorry, Matilda, why is this important? Yes, I shall answer with my words. It's important because this is the first formal step that the government has taken to like officially cutting ties between our government. Yeah, apparently they've kind of been ghosting the Australian government for the last year. Yeah, like it's been tough to reach them and also like economic tariffs and like a bunch of ambassadors getting up and saying that like Australia is fucking up the relationship. It's not like been subtle that the relationship's like going downhill, but like when we're talking about formal international relations moves, this is the first time they've done it. And so specifically, China has ended the China-Australia Strategic Economic Dialogue, which is basically like the Facebook group chat with Australia. Yeah, it's going to be a lot tougher for us to do anything when it comes to China now because we literally like we don't have the ability to just call up. I mean, we didn't beforehand, but we now officially don't have the ability to just call up Xi Jinping and have a chat. China has left the group chat. Yeah, 100%. They're ghosting us. And by the way, this isn't just sort of like political mumbo jumbo, smoke in mirrors. Feelings sort of, hurt. Yeah, like, you know, this can have real economic impacts as well. So the Sydney Morning Herald is already reporting that Chinese importers, so importers in China who buy Australian fruit, meat and honey, they're already dropping and decreasing orders because they're anticipating that sort of the whole domestic relationship is going to go downhill. That includes economic relationships Ooh. potentially. So that's going to impact Australian farmers and that's important to the coalition government that's currently in power. Like they rely on those votes. If that's impacted, that's not a good sign for them either. Mm. I don't know how to end this. No, that's because it doesn't really have an ending yet. There, There isn't like we don't know what this means. We don't know what this will cause. This is the end of chapter one. We've got a whole novel to go. And we'll keep watching and keep you updated. We promise we'll keep you updated. <laughs> Justine. Yes. Do you know what sounds incredibly boring? What, Matilda? The budget. Yes, it does. Justine. Yes. You know what's actually incredibly interesting? I'm assuming it's the budget. It's also the budget, baby. (laughs) It's budget time, baby. It's budget time. Now, I think we're aware that sort of asking people to sit down and listen to, you know, 25 minutes of budget chat is like a hard ask, right? Definitely, which is why we're only going to talk for 24 minutes. Exactly. But I think like we're going to be saying budget a lot, but I think maybe it helps to frame this less about kind of like a laundry list of things that the government's going to spend money on Mm. and more think of it as like where politicians can get up and very clearly lay out what the values they have are what they think Australia needs at the moment, what their kind of vision for governing for the next year is, but doing it like with money because we don't like to talk about feelings here. (laughs) Yeah, we only like things in economic terms. This is basically the government saying, look, this is what we as a country care about. This is why you voted us in. This is what you're going to get next year. So it's very important both in terms of like has real practical outcomes for Australians, but it also 
is a political message to us all. And the other big thing about the budget is that everyone decides to be like a dramatic little bitch about it every year. <laughs> like it's yeah. so much drama. There's so much fanfare There's over it. So much. Oh my god! Like the lead up, the lock up, the speech. Oh and, my god! And that's why we're talking about it this week because next Tuesday is when the budget's going to be announced. But we want you guys listening to be able to hear the budget speech that comes out, read the articles around it, and actually know what the fuck is going on. So, Justine, let's start from the start. What's the budget? So, the budget is the government's estimation of all the income it's going to have coming into it in the next financial year and all the things it's going to spend that income on. But it's kind of a bit more significant than that. So, during elections, political parties and candidates make all these promises to people about what they're going to do if they're elected. And the federal budget is the time when you get to see whether or not they're going to keep those promises and back the things that they said they were going to do. Okay. So the federal budget, it, you know, happens usually around May, unless there's a global pandemic in that, which case one time it happened in October and we don't like to talk about it. <laughs> um, it's written by the treasurer. His staff sort of, you know, work on this. Essentially, yep. they produce this like series of massive holy grail documents and that's released. But before it's released, everyone gets real dramatic. Tell me about that. What's what's budget day going to be like? Walk okay. me through it. So budget day is a very exciting day in, in parliament. I heard Stop. someone once refer it to it, it as like it's the Christmas day of parliament. I hate what the words you're saying <laughs> that are coming out of your mouth right now. <laughs> um. I see the genuine glee in your eye just thinking back to budget day and it's really upsetting. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of but it is exciting because it's, it's this huge announcement that has such a big impact on people. But it's also kind of cool because this thing happens on budget day called the lockup. Oh, my God. Which someone asked us about in our Facebook group. Oh, in fact, they did. They said, what's the lockup? What's the lockup? So the lockup, I know when governments use terms for things – you're probably thinking like, oh, it's not actually a real lockup. Like it's just, you know, an analogy or like a weird cool term they thought would be good to name something boring. No, no, people get locked up. So Keys in locks? Closed doors? Kind of. So not only does the public have no idea about what's going on with the budget, but neither do the other political parties. So representatives chosen from all the different political parties and a bunch of journalists all go into different rooms. They're not allowed their phones, their laptops, security, like stand over the door to make sure they can't go get things and have to escort them to the bathroom. And they're given about about five hours to read through all the budget documents and get themselves across it. This sounds like an exam. It does. It's exactly like exam conditions. This is exam conditions. Yeah, it's the one time, you know, in school when you're like, why are we doing exam conditions? Like no one's going to need this in life. No, no. (laughs) This is the one scenario where you are prepared by high school exams. So, yeah, so they all go into lockup and read through these documents. The documents are things like they get a copy of the speech that the treasurer will make that night. They get... Documents saying like, how's the economy doing? What are the plans for how we're going to spend the money? And then they also get like a really detailed breakdown of how much money each department gets. So there's insane secrecy. They lock everyone up. It sounds like sort of borderline torture techniques. You're given snacks though. You can take snacks in. What snacks? You get to choose. You take your own. Yeah. They don't provide them. No. Torture. Um, Borderline (laughs) torture techniques. Everyone's really dramatic about it. Everyone's sat down. They've read it for five hours. Yes. Suddenly it's nighttime. What what happens next? Okay, so an hour before the end of the five-hour lockup, the leaders of those parties will go in and get briefed so that they're across it because on budget night, all the people get to make speeches. So first up, the federal treasurer, so Josh Frydenberg, is going to go up and he's going to make a speech, the same one that was given to all these people in lockup. He'll literally read it out loud and it's going to really sell this thing. It's like... All the political spin is in this speech. And 
all the facts about the budget, they're in all the extra documents. So it's a real show. It's a fanfare. It's a time for the government to be like, we're going to help Australians. And then the leader of the opposition, so Anthony Albanese, the head of the Labor Party, is going to get up in, in Parliament and be like, this budget is shit. And this is what we would do if we were in government, the Labor Party. We would do all these cool things with our money. So, like, on budget night, you take all of those speeches with, like, a bit of a grain of salt, right? They're all full of political spin. Yeah. They're, it's politicians talking, like, at the end of the day. Yes, and they all want to frame the budget in a very particular light. Yeah, for sure. So, Matilda, for those listening at home who are going to be paying attention to the news this coming week, what can we expect from this year's budget? So we actually know a decent amount about what this budget's going to look like, and that's because it's totally, totally, totally based around the pandemic and COVID-19 and about economic recovery from mm. the lockdowns, from COVID, from you know the whole world shutting down for a year. Yeah. And so last year's budget, which was delayed because of the pandemic. Yeah, it was held in October. Last year's budget was like, oh, my God, the world is burning. Let's spend a bunch of money to help get us out of this situation. Yeah, so we had things like JobKeeper, JobSeeker, JobMaker, money to, like, apprenticeships. Yeah, just lots of job words. and jobs, jobs, jobs. And and actually, Frydenberg said that this entire budget is going to be about jobs again. Um, Uh So the thing is, the Australian economy is in such a better position than we were when Scott Morrison sort of was there trying to sell this, like, doomsday budget last year. Mm. But the hard sell for Frydenberg this year is going to be saying, hey, yeah, we're doing better, but we're not at the point where we want to reduce this unbelievably massive debt that we've got right now because of COVID, because we actually need to sort of keep repairing the economy and repairing the economy means spending more money. Mm. And this is very interesting because this is not what liberal budgets want to do. Liberal budgets aren't about splashing out and spending money. There is nothing that a liberal government would want to do more than stand there and deliver a budget being like, we are going to be totally just breaking even. We're not going to be in debt. We're reducing the deficit. We're maybe even delivering a surplus. That means like actually making more money than they spend. I think we should just pause right here, Matilda, and explain what do they mean when they say deficit? Oh my God, the word deficit's going to come up a lot. It comes up and it's come up a lot over the years. So what does it mean? Because I think it's confusing for people. They hear the government is going into debt. Like, where is this debt coming from? So the federal government, the budget can either be in surplus, meaning that we've got more money coming in than we're spending, or it's in debt, which means that we're spending more money than we're getting in from taxes and other sources. Spoiler alert for this year. Yeah. <laughs> um. So where do we get this money from? The government actually gets it from selling government bonds. It sells them to things like banks and big investors, and then banks like break them up and sell them onto slightly smaller big investors. But basically, the government borrows money from investors and pays them back with interest. So to recap, the federal government, the Liberal Party, hate being in deficit. They want to be financially sound, safe spenders. They, if anything, want to cut money from a lot of the social services that we are currently invested in. But they are (laughs) not in that predicament right now. Um, And it's really awkward because the Liberals have been going after Labor for years because... Time and memoriam. (laughs) Because the Labor Party, particularly under Kevin Rudd, this was back in like 2007 and 2008. The ancient days. Back when we had the first global financial crisis of our lifetimes, the Labor-Rudd government had to borrow a lot of money in order to push it back into the economy to keep everyone afloat. And at the end of Kevin Rudd's term 
as Prime Minister, Labor was in a debt position of around $159.6 billion, okay? Mm. So for years, the Libs are like, you know, screw you, Labor, for putting us and this country in this terrible position. We're going to come in and be the responsible financial managers and fix this debt crisis. Aha, yes, but... Australia is heading for a net debt position of seven hundred billion in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one. What was that first number? <laughs> oh, it was one hundred and fifty nine. What was that second number? Oh, it was about seven hundred billion. <laughs> oh dear. Um, and I mean, part of that's COVID. Not all of it. No, um, that's an important point. Not all of it is COVID, but definitely has been massively exacerbated by COVID. Yeah, because it's another crisis. And after sort of years and years and years of the Liberal coalition government giving Labor shit for like spending a bunch of money in a crisis, mm-hmm. they had a crisis and they're like, oh, fuck, maybe Turns we should out, spend a bunch of money. you got to kind of spend a bunch of money. Turns <laughs> out that's like actually kind of what you need to do in a crisis. So this brings us to where we'll be on Tuesday. Mm. So think about it in the vast, vastly oversimplified terms as liberals love to not be in debt. They love to sort of cut back and pare back on spending. Labor likes to sort of, you know, deliver the services. And maybe if that involves in- debt, that's okay. Yeah, mm. that's, that's sort of the two general. Um, oversimplified cut- versions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's this situation now where everyone could forgive the Liberals last year for spending a shitload of money. Like, mm. we all got it. But now the Liberals are in a position where the economy is actually doing well. Yeah, we're at unemployment rate is about 6%. Yeah, like which is what they said that they wanted to be at before they started, like, repairing the budget. And pairing back those social services. Yeah, but, hey, presto, we're at 6%. Our economy is actually doing well. And all the economists are like, um, no, you definitely need to not pair back the social services yet. You absolutely, in order for us to, like, like, at the moment we're pushing the economy up the hill and it's, like, at a certain <laughs> point it's going to sort of, the engine's going to kick in and it's going to be able to drive itself back up that hill by itself. Yep. And that certain point is um, 4% unemployment is what the government keeps saying. Yes. And so Josh Frydenberg came out, as we mentioned in last week's episode, and kind of gave a little warning, a little early apology to people and said, hey, so this budget, we're not going to be cutting back our spending. We're still going to keep spending. Sorry, everyone who supported us and our small government mentality. (laughs) Yeah. So basically he's on like a pre-apology tour to be like, hey, guys. (laughs) Hey. Dirt's not coming down. Sorry. (laughs) So the government's in this awkward position, but also Labor's in a really awkward position now as well. Yeah. (laughs) Because – we mentioned the reply speech. The opposition's going to have to stand up and be like, how dare you, the government, deliver a budget that looks strikingly similar to the budget that we probably would have delivered and liked to deliver all along. This is so oversimplifying it. But essentially, it's a Liberal government giving us a Labor budget, and which puts everyone in a weird little spot. It does. So, Matilda, how is the economy going? Yes. Yeah, how's our economy? I have no idea. I know. Well, like, that's the thing. We've been saying a lot about, like, oh, the economy's doing well. We've come out of this pandemic way better than we thought we would like we're recovering so fast i think deloitte which is like an sort of economics analysis place called it red hot um and it's okay <laughs> let's just break down exactly why we're doing well okay so there's three main reasons our economy is actually doing better which is one that unemployment has fallen way faster than expected partially because we had way less covert than expected yeah Aussie families are just spending more than we thought they were going to okay and then the third reason and arguably the reason <laughs> is because our economy is doing really well because iron ore prices are ridiculously high. Okay. The, yeah. Sounds weird, right? Yeah. Doesn't sound – What? which of these three <laughs> things aren't the same? 
Yeah, we got some rocks that are fetching a good buck. Yeah, essentially. Uh, like, I don't know what to tell you, mate. It is. Um, everyone wants steel. Yep. For steel, you need iron ore. Okay. I'm learning People so much. People are buying our iron ore. We've got, remember what I said about Western Australia <laughs> being a mine. Um, we got iron no, ore at the wazoo. You. We love you, Western Australia. <laughs> we love you. We've got a shitload of iron ore. China wants to buy a lot of it. China's buying a lot of our iron ore. Last week, iron ore prices were at an all-time high. So suddenly, our one of our major industries mm. is fetching a lot more money than it used to, which means that, you know, it can hire more people, it can start more things, that trickles down into the town. You know how economics works. More money circulating around. Yeah. Um, now, if you're thinking, wow, alarm bells, um, did you say China is buying all of that? Didn't we just spend a full moment talking about China and Australia's relationship being really bad? Yes, that did come through my head. Yeah. Um that's yeah. <laughs> yeah. But when that also because of our tense tense relationship with China, doesn't that also add to the uncertainty of that economic stability? Yeah, exactly. So so far, iron's been exempt from these tariffs and this economic kind of tit for tat that we've been having. But like the fact that that is the reason our economy is going well is like a worry. So, you know, you'll hear the government taking a lot of credit for, you know, like we got through COVID so well, we've pulled through, like uh, the economy's bounced back. Just keep in mind that like we did get through COVID very well, but also our economy would be nowhere near the sort of good place it is in right now if iron ore prices hadn't gone up that much. And just keep in mind that that's, it's not super tenuous, but it's not like the most sturdy of reasons for our economy to be doing well. Gotcha. So when you're listening to Frydenberg's budget speech on Tuesday and he's saying how the Liberal government saved us all, just remember that our cheeky friends in China also helped us along. Yeah. It is definitely going to be a victory lap. The Liberals are going to be taking a victory Oh, prepare yourself for a lot of pats on the back. Like- They're going to be like, we did so well. Sorry for spending money. We did so well. And they'll just like not at all mention that $700 billion of debt that, that's accumulating. I, I've never heard of that before. Actually. I've never heard of the word hear. debt. Uh, suddenly I can't understand what you're saying. You can, it's bl- all just blah, blah, blah. That's all I can hear when you talk. Okay. Okay. So we know that it's going to be a cash splash. We know that we're going to be talking jobs, jobs, jobs. And we know that we're going to be talking about the economy doing well what actually is going to be in the budget what like headlines do we know already okay so one big focus for the government in this federal budget is going to be spending money on helping women in particular making childcare more affordable wow women you say why would that be a focus for <laughs> what, what in the last several months would lead <laughs> us to believe that women may be an area the government needs to prove it can be effective on so, uh, during the last federal budget, last October, the government spent, like, almost no money on helping women out of the pandemic. You say almost no. Tell me how much. Okay. So, let's just put this into context. The The government's budget yep. was spending $500 billion last year. Uh, just in layman's terms, a shitload. A lot of money. Uh, and one third of 1% oh, no. of the $500 billion was put towards women's economic security. Wow, that seems like less than the percentage of women. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, yeah, there was very little funding for women's economic security, but there was also no new funding for frontline domestic violence services. And this came in the context of all these frontline domestic violence services publicly begging the government to give them some more money so that they could support women during what was this huge rise 
in family and domestic violence in the country. Yeah, no one had jobs and everyone was locked up in a house together. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, it was a really... Did they not consider that we might need better domestic violence funding? Yes. So there was that was a really big criticism that came out. So how did the government... When, when people sort of started being like, hey, mate, um, it's a fucking pandemic and you didn't consider putting specific funding in for women. How did the government respond? <laughs> they spoke so badly. Oh, <laughs> so, no. So overnight there's all this like hubbub happening on Twitter and, and in the news about yeah, how the government well, hadn't you know put money towards women, which was a bit of a shock because of how badly women were affected by the pandemic. So what does the government do? Disproportionately to men, by yes, the way. Yes, yes. So what does the government do? Uh, it brings out all its women. Every Wow, that seems like a tactic that wouldn't have been repeated just like one month ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so all the women, it, 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 they all start coming out, all the women from the Liberal government saying that, you know, this budget's really good for us. And one of the worst interviews was Federal Female Minister Anne Rustin, who's the Social Services Minister. She went on ABC the following morning after the budget speech and I, I wrote the quote down. Tell it to me. It's, I know what's coming I and just, it's so It's ridiculous. so unbelievable. If I just knew that if I didn't say it was a quote, it, you just wouldn't believe it. But she said... Older women can take advantage of driving on new infrastructure and roads. So to suggest the budget doesn't focus on women is, I think, wrong. As a young woman, I've never touched a road. (laughs) (laughs) It it was so missing the point, isn't it? It really missed the point. It really missed the point. It was like women are people. People benefit from the budget. Therefore, the budget is made for women. Yeah. It's benefiting women. So they fucked up last year in the budget. Yes. And then... I'm, they haven't had a great year when it comes to women since then. We've talked on this, this show quite a bit about all the an, numerous. An avalanche. Avalanche of, of sexual assault scandals within Parliament. Alleged. Alleged, alleged sexual, sexual assault, assault scandals, scandals in Parliament. And just sort of general alleged sexist behaviour. Mm. Um, so basically they need to um, help women. What the government likes to do when they know that they need to get on the front foot and make a lot of people happy and they've got a nice thing to announce is that they'll announce it before the announcement. So the government came out this week and said that one big thing that's going to be in the budget is a greater subsidization of childcare for parents. And and Labor's sort of put up their own childcare policy to kind of like combat it, to be like, no, vote for us. And and, and so we're kind of having a battle for childcare. But like if if the if parties are going to have a price war over something, I'm kind of like glad it's this. Yeah. And we're probably going to talk about this in much more detail next week when we recap what the budget actually says. Yeah, we'll get into the nitty-gritty numbers. Yes. So that should keep you going until next Tuesday when the budget's dropped and then come back next Thursday and we are going to at least briefly talk about what was actually announced. Should we live react to the budget speech when it comes oh, out? Oh, yeah, you can follow us on, like, Instagram. And we will <gasps> we're doing it. We'll pretend that we were in lockdown. We'll just lock ourselves oh my in God. a room with some we'll snacks for five hours. Down. We'll live stream it. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's just about all we have time for this week. Oh, my God. <laughs> so many big topics. Yeah. Can we who who should we be thanking for the beautiful amount of support, the amazing community, the huge amount of generosity that people have shown by sharing our podcast that we're unbelievably overwhelmed by? Yes, yeah, so the world like you know, not going that great. This podcast going really well. It's Thank really, you. Oh my god. Thank you so much to everyone for liking, sharing, downloading, telling other people about it. Please do it again. <laughs> Please keep doing that. Um, take a screenshot of your phone listening to it, post it on Instagram and tag us, and we will shout you out, which we're about to do right now. Give us those credits of our favorite people. So many names. Okay, thank you so much to Tanil, Kelly, Catherine, Sophie, Isabella, Edwina, Jackie, Madeline, Emma, Shan, Stephanie, Indigo, Miguel, Freya, Freya. Lucy, Jess. 
Jess, Georgia, Divi, Kayla, Effie, M, Lauren, Annika, Anna, Alyssa, Alyssa, Garrett, Miss L, Rose, Sarah, Jocelyn, Bridget, Helene, Jessica, another Sarah, the people behind the Let Them Choke podcast, Sophia, Marin, Bree, the Dose of Insight podcast, and another Jessica. <laughs> so many Jessicas. You pick which one you choose. Yeah, who, Jessica, if you're listening, you get to pick which one you were out of the ones we mentioned. Jessicas. Jessicas. <laughs> We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the land of the Bunurong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past and present. This land was stolen and never ceded. And we also want to acknowledge the country that you're joining us from and pay our respects to any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. The theme music for this podcast is by the amazing Alexis Weaver. Our show is produced by Anthony Furchie and Alex Ty. Mixing and editing by Alex Ty. I'm Justine Landis-Hanley. I'm Matilda Bosley. <laughs> this, this is, is Old Boys Club, Club, a podcast where, coincidentally, we're not wearing belts and we're not wearing robes. <laughs> should have been charging my phone instead of looking up where choice of <laughs> you made your choices and you made the right choices <laughs>